Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the uh, New Books in uh, History. I'm your host, Yorgos Yonakopoulos. Uh, today, uh, I'm very thrilled to, to uh, have Oded Steinberg uh, who, uh, and, and to discuss his uh, new book on a race, nation, history, Anglo-German thought in the Victorian era. Where, uh, Oded, I'll, I'll leave you to introduce yourself to our listeners, and then we'll uh, get started with the book. Well, thank you very much for uh, hosting me today. As uh, uh, George said, uh, uh, um, clearly I'm discussing my new book, on, which is entitled Race, Nation, History, Anglo-German Thought in the Victorian Era. It came out uh, this August, uh, 2019, sorry, in uh, uh, Penn University Press. Um, it's based actually on my uh, PhD or DPhil work at Oxford. Uh, and uh, uh, this was work being done three, four years ago. Since then, I've been a postdoctorate in seven positions uh, in Germany as well as in Israel. And now I'm established in the Hebrew University of Israel as a lecturer beginning from next year. My current work is actually a, a postdoctorate at the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in a, a project on uh, actually the Armenian massacres and the British response. Thank you, George. Excellent. Thank you, Odin. Uh, let's start by breaking down the title, if you will. There's a lot to unpack in the title, I think. Race, Nation, History, Anglo-German Thought in the Victorian Era. Well, uh, let me start by asking you, you know, what drove you to, to the study of Anglo-German thought? And, and, and what, again, and also the Victorian period. Why? What is it there that your book uh, uh, sort of, you know, that you find interesting in, in the process of writing the book? Well, it's a very, it's a very uh, uh, good question because it also involves, of course, biographical uh, notions, my own biography as well. Uh, but I must say that um, uh, before breaking the title, uh, sometimes we come across things or our research in a very, uh, I would say, uh, by accidents, by mere accidents. I think this was the case here. I was very much interested in uh, 19th century periodizations, uh, perceptions of the past, 
um, but also actually 20th century periodization. So, I mean, how do historians divide uh, historical uh, times? Uh, and I came across, of course, uh, works by uh, Peter Brown and others uh, late in the 20th century. And then I said, okay, this thing's very interesting. Let me start by going back with the theme. Um, so I presented my, before coming to Oxford, so I, I sent my Diffield project. And back in the time, it was very big. So it included 19th and 20th century perceptions among British, German, and French scholars. Uh, but once I came to Oxford, I was becoming aware of a whole archival material that is actually based in England about these associations between German and uh, English scholars. Um, and I think this is how, for the first time, I said, okay, there's something here very interesting because it involves intellectual history, but also uh, uh, social history, because there are social connections between these figures, between these scholars. There's a whole networks here. Um, and then I said, okay, let me see how the theme of time is really being developed by this uh, uh, protagonist. I, would, I work this way. I first of all saw who is really writing interestingly about the theme, theme of periodization. And then I saw that they're actually connected in this Anglo-German network, uh, which is evolved around the idea of what I could call racial time. So it's basically dividing uh, time according to racial uh, factors or themes. Uh, this is like the main thing, I think, that, I, that brought me into this subject. Great. So on the one end, we have the book is essentially a reflection on the theme of race, uh, nation and time. And on the other end, it's a uh, recovery of intellectual networks based on specific scholars that you write. Right. And, exactly. and uh, I, right. So let me get let me start with the broader theme, race and time. And if if you were if if you wanted, I would invite you to uh, further, uh, offer some further thoughts on what you call racial time. What is it that happens in nineteenth century and in in and in, uh, in the Victorian era that is uh, uh, that 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 sets forward the, that sets forth this notion of racial time? Um, I would say this. It's mainly. Uh, first of all, there's two angles, or I would say really big spectrums that are uh, evolving here. First of all, there's the dis disciplinary development of faculties. So there's starting to be divisions between history, uh, anthropology, ethnology, uh, uh, even one could say uh, uh, scientific, religious, uh, scientific studies and so on. Um, so this is one thing that really the professionalization, I would say, of history is one aspect which is very uh, um, central in the 19th century. Another really central uh, uh, theme or, or, or development is, of course, the scientific revolution, or I would say the Darwinian revolution of the 18, late 1850s and 1860s. It really brings the notion of race or gives the notion of race a more scientific uh, aura or uh, uh, layers. Now this thing, together with what you can call, uh, which is an earlier revolution, but the whole Aryan revolution, or philological revolution of late 18th century with William Jones, and then figures like uh, Schlegel and Blumenbach, 
and especially Max Muller, who is a prominent figure in my book, who comes to England and actually joins the Teutonic circle of scholars or Anglo-German scholars scholarship, well, this philological, I would say, revolution, together with the Iranian revolution and the institute, uh, the, the professionalization, I would say, of disciplines, these are three aspects that really bring the whole uh, notion of scientific racial time another criteria. Now, Kozelek referred to these things, of course, as acceleration to the end of the 18th century. And he noticed a very interesting thing because once we started to, uh, 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 the professionalization history, history comes into to action and things become uh, uh, faster, then also march more uh, divisions or concrete divisions between historical times. So basically, the whole 19th century, these two objects of periodization, together with this, are coming together and being more under, I would say, uh, definite definitions. Now, when I say definite definitions, this does not mean that the concept of race or periodization is not fluid. It is still, as I also argue in my book, very much fluid. So on the one hand, we have this kind of institutions, faculty institutions, and more definitions of time, concrete definitions of, of periodization, so on, but on the other end, there's still fluidity there. So sometimes race is a very loaded term, because sometimes it means still nation, culture, or even language, and sometimes it has this scientific uh, aspect. So there's a lot of composites, and it, sometimes even, I would say, contradicting themes here, but I try to bring it together. I think the concept of racial time really brings this idea of periodization, of divisions fist into periods, and the idea of race together. And many of these figures, even most of them, think in this time or in this way on history. So they see history as a sort of long durée of racial battle even. It's a sort of new, one could say, a clash of civilizations, 19th century style. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And on this, could you elaborate a bit more on what on uh, on the identity of the key figures of your study uh, in Britain and in Germany? Your main yes, protagonist. Of course. of course. So I would say it's a very uh, the best thing or to remember this is sort of a genealogical link because there is a, it's like a family of scholars, one could say. Actually, it's also a family in the sense that some of them are also related through marriages and so on. But in general, we have the, the, the one could say, the Ufater. So there's the early connections between uh, uh, Thomas Arnold, uh, historian, the father of Matthew Arnold, and the famous classicist, uh, Roman, even Roman historian, Niebuhr. This is, I would say, the founding members of the Anglo-German scholarship connection. And they are, uh, both of them are very much also involved in, I would say, state matters, or even education matters. In the case of Niebuhr, he's an ambassador to Rome, but also a very prominent figure in German scholarship of the early 19th century. And Thomas Arnold, of course, is an educationalist and the founder of the rugby school. Um, now, these figures are actually, uh, I would say, the first layer of, of this whole circle. And then we have the next phase of scholars who are also in touch. So Arnold, Thomas Arnold and Niebuhr meet together and Arnold is fascinated by Germany. He is fascinated by the Teutonic idea, an idea that basically means that 
the forefathers of both Germany and England, and I would say England here, of course, and not Britain, because that's a totally different aspect or layer of understanding, uh, are basically a common, the common uh, Anglo-Saxons, or in this case, the common Teutonic Germanic tribes. And this whole Germanic tribes, this is what is the thematic issue that brings all these figures together. And then the next layer is actually Baron Bunsen, who's a very close associate of uh, 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 Niebuhr. He's his, also his helper or his advisor in uh, Rome, as in the Vatican, where Niebuhr is an uh, uh, ambassador. Bunsen comes later as an ambassador to, uh, to England, ambassador of Prussia. And he uh, brings with him later Max Muller. So if you want, there is a, 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 a grandfather, which is uh, Niebuhr, a father, which is Bunsen, and uh, an uncle kid or, or a grandchild, which is uh, Max Muller. And on the other end, or say the English side, we have Thomas Arnold, who's very influential about a whole series of English scholars, especially in the mid-century. Uh, uh, the most prominent is maybe, uh, or the most prominent among them are Edward Augustus Freeman, uh, uh, who's a later religious professor in the end of his life, but during most of his life, he's a, a man of letters. Uh, we have also uh, Stubbs, William Stubbs, who's a religious professor of modern history in Oxford. And we also have, and it's exactly, the Teutonic affinity is a very sort of vague theme, but another member of the group is uh, uh, James Bryce, who's actually Scottish, or Presbyterian Scott. Um, but he's also among, among figures. But there's a whole chain, I would say, of around 20 to 30 figures, who all of them actually held connections through correspondence, but also through thematic themes. Um, a very interesting notion to, to uh, uh, recollect upon is this marriage link just between them. So, for instance, Max Muller is married to uh, uh, Charles Kingsley's niece. Now, Charles Kingsley, during the 1860s, he's a religious, he's a, of course, a famed uh, a Victorian author. Walter Babies, of course, is the most one of his most famed uh, creations. But uh, Charles Kingsley is also responsible as a religious professor of modern history in Cambridge in the 1860s to a very uh, uh, prominent, I would say, even influential in the sense of its uh, uh, public appearance, essay by the name of Roman and Teuton. Now, Max Moore is married to him, to his niece. And he's also, so you, and you feel, uh, actually, Max Muller also defends Charles Kingsley works. So all these connections, there's personal connection between all of these figures. They have this correspondence, vast correspondence. The book deals with this vast correspondence, I, I think, for the first time ever, with a very sort of unique group of figures. It's not that no one ever wrote about them. They did. But I don't think no one ever cracked these social, intellectual links and also the overarching theme of this uh, um, mixture between race and periodization that they all fixed upon. And each one of them has actually a, a unique but also similar idea of divisions of time, of racial time, if you want. Yes, thank you. Yes, and I want to get there just to again point out, as you did, the closely knit world of uh, elite institutions in, in Britain and elsewhere and how... The connections are not simply intellectual, they're also life connections as well. Uh, mm -hmm. you, the, 
English figures you discuss in the book, namely Bryce, Bury, Freeman, uh, you you note in the book that they share a, cer- a certain uh, perception of of history and time, in uh, in the sense that for them uh, they're believers in a certain idea of of history being uh, in unity in unison. Can you elaborate further on that? What is it that holds them together? What kind of understanding of historical time uh, do we have here in, in, with regard to your British uh, uh, and English uh, sources? Mm, yes, of course. So I would say the idea of the unity of history is a phrase that is being brought for the first time by Thomas Arnold, who, as I just mentioned, was, one could say, the the father of all this uh, uh, um, Teutonic circle together with Niebuhr on the on the German side. Uh, now, this idea of unity of history basically claims that there is only long durée historical periods. So there's one historical period which is divided into certain subdivisions. Um, now, it's a very it's not uh, these definitions must not say or these themes are not. I would say they're very composite. They're full of uh, um, uh, contradictions as well. But in general, because even amongst one writer, so one writer, the one could say many ideas about how he sees time or historical time. But in general, these figures, or, or most of them at least, had this idea of a long durée historic line divided to sub-periods. Let's, for instance, focus on uh, uh, Edward Augustus Freeman or E.A. Freeman. Mm-hmm. Now, I think his idea is a clear example of what I call as racial time. Yeah, he has a design of unity of time divided to sub-periods. Now, these sub-periods, I would say, are, are uh, relating to, or I would say one time is related to the Aryan race. So it's the, the whole historical time is divided by racial definitions. So there's a, a whole Aryan racial time. And this is going against, one could say, the Semitic time. So this kind of subdivision started before even the appearance of clashes in the 19th century or even the Middle Ages, they started, for instance, in the Punic Wars, where Carthago is fighting against Rome. According to Freeman, for instance, this is one of the epic first battles between the two races. Okay, so, and these clashes between the races, this is actually what divides the historical time. So another time where a very big clash will happen is only in the 7th century uh, AD, when, of course, the Arabs, Muslims, starting the invasions from the uh, Middle East and starting to expand, actually, and they clash, of course, with the Aryan race. So, it's, again, it's this kind of war of Semitic and, and uh, uh, Aryan races. Uh, if you want, it's a lo- very long durée of historical time. Another clash will be later in the 19th, or especially in the 19th century, but even before, of course, from the 15th century between the Ottomans and uh, uh, the Christian world, the Christian Aryan world. Now, of course, one could claim the Ottomans or the Turks are not exactly Semitic, they're Turinian, and Turinian is a, I would say, definition that or category that's being brought to the table in the mid-century by figures like Bunsen and Max Müller, and this refers to the whole people who live in Tur, in the uh, Asian plateau. Uh, but again, there are they are a, a, category, a different racial category. So basically, these clashes of uh, between the races is what divide the big uh, stretch of time into subdivisions. 
This is a very prominent example of Freeman, who's, a, I would say, one of the protagonists of the book of this kind of claim of racial time. But I must say there are other examples as well. For instance, uh, James Bryce. Now, James Bryce, as I uh, 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 stated before, he was a Scottish Presbyterian Scot, uh, um, very much akin to uh, also Teutonic ideas, but he's not fervent Teutonic like Freeman. He's a bit more mild, I must say. And this is a differentiation that I bring in the book. But Bryce, in profession, he's a lawyer or I would say he's a professor for civil law. He's actually the founder of civil law in Oxford. Uh, um, and he divides between the civil law and history back in the beginning of the 1870s. Now, Bryce sees in a very successful, but I would say, I must say, neglected book today, The History of the Holy Roman Empire, a book that was first published in 1864. There, Bryce brings a long durée of, I would say, constitutional history, beginning by to, uh, Roman Teutonic uh, notions that are embedded in the Holy Roman Empire, but are beginning already in the time of Julius Caesar and Augustus. So Bryce, in the beginning of the Holy Roman, Roman Empire, has a long durée of Caesars, beginning with Augustus and uh, Caesar and Augustus, and stretching until 1804 or 6. So in, according to him, there's a whole almost 2,000 years of long history which is an enduring existence of a sort of Romano-Teutonic constitutional law that is also reflecting a historical endurance. What is interesting in this case, that in the first editions, before 1871 or the unification of Germany, uh, the, of course the, the line broke in 1804-06 depends on how you see the end of the Holy Roman Empire. But then after the unification, he brings the list back and he says that Germany is actually the continuous of this sort of long stretch of historical endurance. By the way, the history of the Holy Roman Empire, and just to give you a glimpse about the success of the book, uh, was sold in multiple editions. And it's a very, used to be a very, very popular book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And, and uh, there, there's, there's current scholarship that uh, sort of aims to place the sort of reconstruction you do on the intellectual side of things, i.e. the ideas about tetonism, and, and see how um, uh, scholars like Bryce, like Freeman and others, understand international politics and imagine Britain's place in the world. Does mm. your book touch on this, or how do you see this sort of strain of scholarship that, that, that tries to project these kinds of questions on their understanding of international affairs, international relations, etc. This is an excellent question. And I think, of course, Duncan Bell uh, deals with this a lot in his uh, work on Sealy as well, uh, for a religious professor in Oxford, in uh, Cambridge, sorry. But I would start by stating that uh, Freeman has a very famous uh, saying that is actually debated in the 
research whether it was him who stated this saying or not. The conclusion, the latest conclusion, and I tend to agree uh, uh, following the, uh, uh, an essay I read in Notes and Queries, or a short essay I read in Notes and Queries, is that actually his saying says that history is past politics and politics are present history. And I think in this sense, all these figures are very much very involved in the world. They're active diplomats, journalists. For instance, Freeman writes over 700 articles, essays to the Saturday Review. Some of them, of course, are more than anonymous uh, because this is the method of the Saturday Review. But not only him. Uh, Stubbs is, is, uh, uh, is very much involved in religion, in religious debates as well. Kingsley, of course. Uh, Bryce is very much a, is a member of parliament later. So all of them are very much not only men of letters or writing scholarship, but are also very much involved in the world. And I would say the place of Britain here is very much important because the whole aspect of how this kind of the division of time and how time is basically uh, 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 divided into certain periods or racial categories in the sense of case of Freeman and others is that basically it's kind of clash over the Eastern question with the Ottomans is a very much uh, reflecting the idea of time. So I would say there's a clash between the empires in the sense there's no clash because as they see it, of course, Britain is uh, going against the Aryan Christian notion, especially the Israeli, really basically by his sort of long support of the Ottomans, he basically goes against the whole Aryan race and Aryan Christian uh, affinity, um, and then why? And they actually attack him on this. All this, uh, this a group of, of course, liberals. They attack the Israeli harshly on this, but not only him. Uh, Gladstone, of course, is also a close friend of these figures, and he also speaks about this sort of notion that, of course, in the Bulgarian horse against uh, uh, the pact with uh, uh, the Ottoman Empire and so on. By the way, this does not mean that once the uh, the the liberals are in power, they will already change Britain's course. But what I want to say is that the, 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 the politics of the days is really reflected in this kind of days of racial clashes. And Freeman, for sure, is very much involved in this kind of debates. He's a harsh uh, uh, critic of the Israeli and of the, the pact with the Ottomans. And I think that he wants to put this politics inside his history, I would say. Of course, today, it's something that is forbidden or forbidden in, in, in uh, uh, at least on paper, because people still, of course, bring their uh, own private ideas into their historical writings, some in a more uh, direct way, some in a more vague way, but this still happens. But there, of course, this kind of differentiation between the themes was uh, uh, less apparent. History is not as professional as it well, became to be, maybe. But I think in this sense, this really reflects uh, uh, Freeman's idea. And he wants basically to bring England back into the good side of history as he sees it. Uh, so he wants them to actually go harshly against the Turks. And also he brings this kind of long durée historical uh, uh, divisions between the races. Uh, this is in the case of Freeman. In the case of uh, uh, Bryce, it's also, of course, very uh, prominent in the sense that he was very much involved in the Eastern question. He, of course, cared very much from the 1870s for the Armenian communities in the East. And in this case, again, this idea that there's a pact of, uh, I would say, Romano, uh, uh, 
Teutonic, Germanic uh, constitution is something that the West, the West should cherish. And also this is the place of Britain in the world to be much more active uh, 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 in the sense of uh, uh, cherishing this sort of values as he sees them. Uh, one could say it's proto-humanitarian or proto, uh, but of course there's a Christian affinity here, but there's, uh, I would say, linkage between the themes. Now, a very interesting episode, just to uh, clarify about the ideas of race and language here, is that in the case of the uh, the whole Eastern question, according to Freeman, not only him, by the way, uh, even though, for instance, nations like the Bulgarians are of uh, uh, Turkish or Turinian uh, origins, once they adopt Christianity, they became part of the Aryan race. So what's very interesting here is that sometimes Freeman sees this, you know, the independent factor is a race, but sometimes the independent factor could also be religion. And this is also how he plays it into the politics of the British Empire. So for instance, who are my allies in the world? Who should I do pacts with? And one of these pacts, for instance, should be, as Freeman argues, should be with Russia against the Ottomans or Turks. Uh, so this is sort of very clear uh, example of the, I would say, amalgamation of politics and history. Very interesting you're pointing to the instant question, which shows a different dimension, because there's, there has been stuff written on, on uh, Freeman, Bryce, and, you know, America and, and the and Anglo-Saxon Commonwealth, but the Eastern question brings different complexities. And on this, and on the... Um, uh, one thing that we identified is this also uh, a mixture, if you will, of ideas about Aryanism, uh, race, and, and religion. And I wanted mm. to ask you here about uh, the, the uses and the understandings of Aryanism, obviously associated with Max Müller and others in, in the Victorian setting. In what ways do these debates on Aryanism differ from later debates on Arianism that we find in the 20th century? Hmm. It's a, yeah, this is a very complex and good, but also a very good and interesting question, I think. And it's, I would even stretch it beforehand. I mean, I would even go to William Jones in the eight, in, uh, end of the 18th century, because he's really the first one, or I would say the second one, who brings this sort of Arian notion into the debate. But he brings it, of course, mainly through philology basically through this Ursprache of Sanskrit that is, that is maybe the source of everything. Now, through this sort of philological origin or uh, language origin, somewhere in the East, meaning through India until the Kafkaz, uh, there's a whole sort of Aryan debates uh, uh, throughout the 19th century. Uh, of course, uh, uh, Schlegel and Bob and others. And Max Muller, I would say, is another carrier, the most uh, known carrier of these themes. This is, of course, uh, being debated uh, uh, very interestingly in uh, the epic book of uh, Troutman, but not only there. And I would say that it's a very interesting debate because what you see there is this mixture between, uh, I would say, racial affinities and language affinities, of course, or philological affinities. The thing is this, once you find the origin of a certain language, in the case of Max Muller, the next uh, uh, thing will be is also to find that, or to claim that this is also an origin of the race. But what you see mainly in the 19th century is all the time this 
mixture between, I would say, biological understandings and we we'll say more cultural, philological understandings. This is all the time a mixture there. And they're not very clear sometimes where they're going. Max Muller, for instance, is very known about the fact that he's not a very sort of racial uh, commentator or, or a, a writer. He's not really bringing race all the way in. But I must say that in terms of the Aryans, and especially when you see it around, for instance, uh, harsh episodes like the 1870 war, 1871-1871 uh, war with, uh, between Prussia and France, uh, or Germany and France, there, of course, he brings sort of racial tendencies into the table. And he also has a lot of claims about racial uh, Aryan blood and so on uh, um, that actually comes to the table. So even though language is very prominent in his uh, uh, um, uh, writings and so on, I would say that race also, also as a physical form in terms of blood, also appears there. So I would not undermine it, for instance, in the case of Max Buller. But of course, these divisions are very, very interesting. By the way, the first one who really, so who's the dominant theme said that uh, following the philological inquiry, that basically the source is somewhere in India or northern India, uh, the place of the land of the Arya, if you want. Uh, but then, for instance, in the middle of the century, uh, I'm working now in another article about an ethnologist by the name of Robert Gordon Latham. Now, Latham, for instance, is one of the first ones, or one could claim the first one in England, to re actually refute uh, the Aryan thesis. And he claims, for instance, against Max Muller, that the Aryans are, a, or the Aryan language, or Sanskrit even, I would claim, frame it this way, actually begins somewhere in Lithuania. Uh, he's the founder, one of the founders of the London Soci Ethnological Society. Uh, uh, he's a vice president there. Uh, he's also, uh, Latham is also the uh, curator of the Crystal Palace. He's actually not mentioned in the book, but I would say part of the work that evolved for my book is about these figures. For instance, he's joining a figure that is mentioned in my book by the name of Crawford, also an ethnologist. Both of them actually harshly attacking everything that is German or actually everything that is associated with Max Muller's theory. So there's a whole two circuits here evolving in the mid-century. On the one hand, Max Muller and the whole Aryan concept that is really taken by figures like Freeman and so on. And on the other hand, figures like Latham and Crawford. Now, what Latham and Crawford are doing here, actually, they're trying to distance the uh, relationship between the Europeans and the Indians. They say we are different by grade, by culture, by looks, of course. So they bring race into the table again. So they claim that Max Moore is actually, uh, uh, can, his, his theory is not right because the whole sort of cultural as well as racial differences cannot uh, uh, support a theory like this. This is one aspect of their claim. The other aspect, of course, is philological. They say a very interesting claim that is also connected to the whole Darwinian revolution. The claim is this. Once you go closer to the origin, there's more variety of species, meaning because there's more languages, as they claim, in Europe, a variety of languages than in northern India, then the source was in Europe and not in India, in northern India. And I think this is a fascinating debate, which is actually evolving from debates that I, I uh, focus on my book, on the whole Aryan question, which is the, one could say this is the ultra category, or the, 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 the most uh, overarching category.
Mm-hmm. One needs to understand that in these cases, there's also subdivisions or inner hierarchies, if you want. So in the top of the pedestal, you have the Teutonic nations, among the Aryans, of course, according to these figures, and then you have the Celtics and the Slavs. Of course, there's a whole question, should the Celts be pulled under the Aryan race? And this is a question that has already been referred by ethnologists by the name of Pritchard, a very known ethnologist. But this is being solved, or the, the I would say not being solved, but the claim is that they are connected to this. Uh, but there's still a pedestal, there's still inner hierarchies. So even among the Aryans, there's, in, there's inner hierarchies, which are very, very important. Now, I mentioned the Celts, beside the Eastern question, another sort of great other is, of course, France, or the Celtic uh, entity of France. Now, this also plays into this sort of inner Aryan hierarchies. In a different, total different triangle or pedestal or underneath this whole Aryan triangle, or if you want hierarchy, there's the whole, one could say, Semitic races. And then Turinians, depends which one is above the pedestal. But according to them, it's just imagine sort of a timeline of uh, uh, races, if you want, or pedestal of races. Um, yeah, so it's a very sort of loaded uh, term, I would say, and a very interesting one. Uh, and I'm still following it in the work I'm, being, I'm doing now, actually according also regarding the Armenians, for instance. Yeah, excellent. The, 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 exactly, your book shows the complexities of talking about race in Victorian Britain. And another um, loaded term and loaded distinction uh, uh, that I, I think your book also uh, uh, illustrates and uh, paradigmatically, and I'd like your view on this before we move on, is... is you know, the uh, uh, distinction between race and nation and understandings of nationality and of the nation that are based or not based on racial categories. And what is striking here to me is that you're making the claim, and that's also the point of an intellectual historian, rather, uh, that certain authors uh, use race and nation, the certain authors you write about, in differing, in different ways depending on the context, on the audience, and on the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a very good point. That, again, uh, as you start from your question, it's a loaded, another very loaded term. And of course, what's very interesting about this is, again, the theme of categories, because basically what race does is breaking national uniqueness, in a sense. It brings a transnational aspect in. So it joins, instead of breaking nations, it joins nations, and it brings sort of whole nations together against other whole nations. So in this case, one could say Aryans, for instance, against Semites, but Semites, but one could claim differently. It brings, for instance, the English and the Germans as nations, this is what race does, together against, for instance, the French Celts, one could claim. And this really resonates, if we spoke before on politics and history, this is really seen uh, uh, during the 1870-1871 war, when authors like Max Muller, for instance, write in the uh, daily newspapers and urge the Brits, or the English in this case, to support Germany's cause as a nation, of course, because they have a, a certain racial affinity. So in this aspect, race is a, again, overarching category is being brought to the table in order to bring the English nation closer to the German one. So it's very, very interesting. So sometimes it breaks, 
So it breaks the national differences between certain nations, but actually it gives a bigger antagonism, if you want, with different nations who belong to certain other subdivisions, for instance, Celts, and let's say the Irish, for instance, in the case of the Irish, in the case of the English. What happens in the 19th century, and this is a claim being brought to the table by uh, 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 many other uh, scholars before I did it, but it's, I, I try to, I think it's, it's reasonable and I follow it, is that actually English identity is English identity, differed from, I would say, British identity is being brought up in the book of Linda Coley and others, uh, uh, is being really being invented in a sense during the ha- second half of the ninth century. And this is partly because suddenly the Irish are much more apparent, or the Irish Celts, if you want, Irish Celts and Catholics are much more there. So there's a differentiation here again of religion, Catholics, versus, I would say, a certain Protestant, Anglican affinity, an affinity which is also based on racial affinity, of Teutonic affinity, uh, uh, and it's against a different other, Irish, Catholics, and of course Celts, French, Catholics, and of course Celts, and so on. So basically, this is being brought to the Bible. One should remember, of course, and now I'm uh, presenting this actually in another article, that the Irish categories of race were really also brought up in the, or in the public British sphere during the second half of the 19th century, especially following the famine. Because following the famine, there's a whole sort of migration from Ireland to uh, uh, big uh, uh, cities like Manchester, for instance. And what we say, the whole Fenian uh, uh, revolt, or the beginning of the Fenian revolt of 1860, is basically being seen much more by the English public. And suddenly they're starting to fear, I would say, their own identity. And when this happened, they're trying to reach out for a new transnational racial affinities with other nations. So it's no longer a sort of a British unity, but this would be an English-German unity against a different other. Uh, so this category is really interplaying to also politics, but also the needs of the time. I would say in the 1860s, the whole Irish problem is really getting its force or one or two really major boosts toward what will happen uh, later to be, uh, of course, uh, one of the bigger problems in, in uh, uh, British politics. Right, excellent. Uh, by by way of, of, of concluding this, I was attracted towards uh, the end of your book and your conclusions. Uh, you, uh, you refer to the heated debate of the nature of Anglo-German relations uh, in the second half of the 19th century and in the early 20th century. And I wondered, and that's another dimension that, uh, of your book, uh, uh, if you if you wanted to say a couple of words in situating the sort of reconstruction you do with regards to you know the Anglo-German networks of debate, uh, if you want to situate this discussion uh, uh, vis-à-vis the broader question and the heated question in scholarship on the nature of Anglo-German relations uh, uh, in this period. Yes, of course. Uh, thank you for this. Um, well, one could say that there is, of course, from the, as I started with Niebuhr and Arnold, Thomas Arnold today, there is a rise, of course, an emergence or, or the growing links already from the Napoleonic Wars between England and Germany, of course. Of course, again, they have a mutual enemy. And, and this has been debated, of course, in Russia, but once Germany, or when Germany is not a big opponent, one say, or a big, uh, 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 
rival in the world arena, but still emerging there. Of course, Prussia is a, 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 a big entity during the, the, the end of the 18th century, even beginning of the 19th, but, but later on, so of course, things change. And of course, the main, the main uh, I would say, the pivot is in, in Austria, when they are obscuring their empire. But I would say that once, when Germany is not a big uh, uh, rivalry, I would say that the English are really looking forward to, to promoting, of course, this notion of uh, uh, transnational affinity with the Germans. You see it in 1870, 1871, um, but even after the war, the unification of Germany, still, these connections have been still promoted. Of course, and this again is being debated in research, but the change is indeed somewhere in the 1890s, beginning of 1890s, where really politics, and you see, for instance, the pact on Zanzibar and Heliogeland, the island for the African colonies, and also later, there is something which, which is changing there, when Germany does have, of course, the whole triptych plan, and they're getting their hand more into, uh, into world politics, one would say. But what's interesting here, that even... As I stated in the book, even by the beginning or months before the opening of the World War One, uh, some of these figures from the community I'm talking about, the Anglo-German scholarship, they're still bringing to the debate of being still being accused of actually supporting Germany's cause. Bryce is being uh, accused of being a philo-teuter, for instance. Now, Bryce, one should understand, he's the one who's responsible later for the British report for the German uh, invasion to Belgium. Yeah, the horrors of Belgium, if you want. Uh, he's the one, but he's still being accused. Uh, so this, this affinity is very sort of embedded in, in, in uh, we say, British politics and goes into the, into the war. Of course, Bryce changes very fast his, his, uh, his uh, notions of Germany into the war. And I'm not saying even before the war, he was sort of pro-German. But these things, I, I would claim, are much more stronger than people tend to, to think. Um, and let's take it even to the Second World War, if you want, in the uh, uh, notion of conclusion and so on. You know, Hitler, 1940, still believes. 1940, yeah? a year into the war, still believes. And this, I claim, is part of the whole history I'm telling here. I'm not saying there's a direct link here, but in the sense of the general notion of how he sees England, and this is also part of the distinguished, he sees them as a sister nation in a sense. And he still thinks that he could sort of bring England into his own side, either through a, 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 a truce or sort of a, a non-aggression non pact or whatever. But uh, what I want to say is that this sort of uh, uh, intellectual notions of an affinity between England and Germany are very much strong, and they even surpass the... the, the animosity and, of course, the fight of World War I, and they, they endure into that. Um, and by the way, uh, for instance, one could say that, the, you know, the whole mixture of English and German uh, uh, relations is, of course, being seen in the monarchy. There's a whole issue about that. Uh, I mean, I won't develop it now. But, of course, again, these genealogical relations between the English British monarchy, I want to say, in this case, I will even call it English monarchy because of the German affinity, is being, of course, uh, developed already in the beginning of the 18th century. Uh, 
So uh, this, I would say, very loaded uh, question of Anglo-German affinity and animosity is something which is a sort of an undercurrent sometimes uh, in the relations of both countries, also in the politics and their uh, cultural relations even, or uh, affinities, I would say. Yes, indeed. And, and your work is a contribution to that and also to the very, very interesting and complex uh, interloping registers of discussion on race, nation, and historical time in 19th century. Uh, well, Ode, thank you very much for this. Uh, just to remind our audience again, uh, the book is called Race, Nation, History, Anglo-German Thought in the Victorian Era. Thank you. Thank you, thank you.